Welcome to the Barely Protestant Podcast. I am Brother James, your co-host, and the other one is... Timothy. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Doing alright. So, um, today, well, before we we get into what we're going to talk about, uh, anything going on in your life? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm recently unemployed, by choice, actually, uh, to focus on my last couple semesters of my undergrad and to gear up for, like, grad school applications and stuff. So that's been an interesting change recently. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of faith right there. <laughs> um, yeah, I... Uh, uh, thankfully, this uh, last year, I've not had to work as hard as... or as much, um, like, with a job uh, as I had with the other two years for my um, uh, seminary training. It's been a lot easier, except for the fact that I'm doing Hebrew and Greek right now. Which was oh, yeah. really stupid of me, but <laughs> yeah, they're doing them both at the same time. Yeah, well, so I'm doing Hebrew one, and then I'm doing Greek exegesis. Oh, so it's more of just the exegetical part, hence the name. Okay, um, so you're you're a lot further along in your Greek than you are in your Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. The way it works here at Trinity is that we do um, he one year of Hebrew and one year of Greek, and then we choose. An, exeget- uh, an exegesis class for Hebrew or Greek. Oh, uh, interesting. As far as requirements go. But I highly recommend to anyone who's looking at going to seminary to study these things before they go to seminary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had I've had several friends tell me that, that if they could go back and do anything over again, they would have learned Greek before they went to seminary. Yeah, I, I do think it's essential. I think, uh, especially with my desire to go into college ministry... I'll definitely be coming across people who are, you know, looking at going to ministry themselves. So I'm I'm going to try to push them to study, especially Greek, but uh, also Hebrew. Oh, okay. But yeah. So I haven't told this. I'm debating if I should tell this or not, but uh, I guess I will since I already said it. Uh, I am uh, looking at ordination to the diaconate November 10th, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, a, thank you very much. Uh, it's been fun few years, just the paperwork and the testing and, you know, making sure I'm not too crazy and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so, God willing, um, I, you know, I got the date set for it. So what would you say is, uh, what would you say is the, was the hardest part of the process of, like, becoming a postulant and and get moving towards ordination to the diaconate? Um... The hardest part was, I guess, the waiting for me, honestly. Oh, okay. I guess. Like, none of it was really... Like, because I still have to do, like, my deacon exam and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, like, just the waiting, I think. Hmm. And not knowing and everything. Uh, it's it's finally happening. I'm um, bringing a few friends of mine, uh, seminary friends, uh, down with me. So, you know, we can go and everything. Uh, unfortunately, my favorite pub in the whole world is closed, so I will not be able to use that, uh, celebrate there after. Like, close down permanently, or just close that day? Close down permanently. Well, it would have been closed down that day anyway, but now permanently. I'm sorry, that sucks. (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to find another one. Although I might just go to the Thai place that that I always go to anyway, because Thai food's like my favorite. Oh, I'm I'm a big fan of Thai food as well. Oh yeah, that's amazing. I, I am a big, like, spice head. I love spicy food. Mm. Um, I'm a ca- I'm kind of a capsaicin junkie, so Thai food's really high on my list of ethnic cuisine that I appreciate. Nice. Um, so 
Today we will be talking about uh, confession and absolution. Uh, we're wrapping up, well, we're past the halfway mark with the uh, um, sacraments, the seven sacraments. Uh, so, let's start with what confession and absolution is. Because we say confession, but the confession part is not really the, the sacrament itself, you know. Uh, the absolution, the forgiveness of sins, would be. So, confession and absolution, as, as sort of regularly understood, is uh, the, the the primary way people understand it is through how the Roman Catholic Church does it, where you go into that little booth, although not necessarily in that booth, um, you confess your sins to a priest, and the priest pronounces absolution, usually with penance, um, and then you are forgiven your sins by God, and you have to do that for mortal sins. Mm. Not venial sins, necessarily, although you can certainly confess them in that way, but uh, when it comes to a mortal sin, which is a different category of sin entirely, um, which we might get a little bit into, uh, you have to do, you have to go to a priest for confession, or you are in danger of uh, dying in a state of sin, and uh, going to hell, basically, yeah. not even purgatory. Yeah, there is one loophole that I uh, that I'm aware of in Roman Catholic theology, and it's called it's called a, an act of perfect contrition. And um, th- this is this might be a little nebulous. So, if any, any Roman Catholic uh, brethren are listening, and I butcher this, I'm sorry. Uh, but as far as I understand it, it uh, an act of perfect contrition is. A, a movement of the soul where, it, where when you're looking at, at the mortal sin you've committed you, um, you repent of it in a, kind of perfectly in the sense that you, you repent of it not because of the negative effects of the sin and not because of the fear of hell but of, out, of a, out of an overabundance of love for God um, and they would, the, in Roman Catholic theology as far as I understand it, that actually uh, remits the mortal sin you should still they say you should still go to confession, but the actual absolution has already taken place in virtue of the act of perfect contrition. So that would be um, sort of a, I don't want to say loophole, but sort of it helps with the sort of problems of like, well, what if you can't find a priest? You know, you're dying and, you know, sort of thing like that. Yeah. I take it. Yeah, I didn't mean loophole in a negative sense. I just meant like... No, yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. Um, Well, so uh, within Anglicanism and... uh, coming from a variety of traditions within Anglicanism, that's not our, our position. Um, that would be much more of a sort of um, Anglo-Romanist position, and I don't use Romanist in a pejorative way, but like the Anglicans who are more Roman Catholic than they are Anglican, you know? Yeah. Um, but within sort of uh, the Tractarian or Caroline traditions, that's not the understanding, uh, at least within segments of the Tractarians. So, uh, my priest back home is a very Anglo-Catholic priest, and he does not require, and, and states very much that he's not one who requires uh, personal confession with a priest. The adage is, all can, some should, none must. Have yeah. you heard that one before? Okay. Yeah, it's, I think it's falsely attributed to Queen Elizabeth I, um, or at least it's, it's commonly attributed to her. I don't, I don't, I've never seen any documentary evidence that she actually said it, but yeah, that's kind mm-hmm. of the traditional Anglican... Uh, f- turn of phrase that sums up kind of what we think about its necessity. Wouldn't be surprised if it's John Dunn, honestly. Yeah, pr- probably. And it, what's funny is, is uh, it, it, the 
you know, the a lot of people focus on the uh, the nun must, but what I find really interesting is, and I, the reason I love the phrase is, the you know, all may, some should, none must. The some yeah. should, I think, it doesn't get enough emphasis, and I think this is where even if we have some differences in um, in actual uh, like sacramental theology behind it, we would probably could agree that auricular confession, you know, confession to a a uh, a priest is underutilized in the Anglican tradition oh, today. Yes. Um, I mean, it's the I, the prayer book is really clear on if you, I mean, in the exhortation in the traditional exhortation, what's called the first exhortation in the 1662 prayer book, um, it's directed that. If you know, if you have a troubled conscience, come to a a godly priest and receive counsel yes. and absolution. Um, so I, I don't think Anglicans avail themselves of that that means of grace enough today. Oh, I mean, I fully agree. I and my brother, who's very traditional Roman Catholic, sort of freaks out at this part. But I, I like because he thinks like that's it. But uh, I make sure at least for Lent and. Um, uh, Advent, I go to confession. Um, hmm. To uh, at least for those two times a year, uh, and then more often, um, I'd say probably every year I do more often than that. But I always have to make sure at least for those two times. Um, and my, good. Oh, well, what I was going to ask you was is um, say a little bit about your um, your practice in preparation for communion. Like you said, you try to always make a point of going for or yeah, sorry, not communion. Well, um, for confession, you said you go before uh, the beginning of, or you go at the beginning of Lent and Advent. So what do you, like, you know, for for somebody who's only familiar with the idea of confession in a Roman Catholic context, you know, you have to com- you have to confess all your mortal sins, um, and an unconfessed mortal sin is an you know an unabsolved one. Um, you, what do you as an Anglican think you ought to confess in the confessional, um, and how do you go about preparing yourself to make that confession? So, uh, part of this goes into the sort of, I guess, quote, psychology of uh, confession and absolution. Um, there are things that will plague my mind that I, even though I know, um, you know, God forgives uh, the sins of, of those who, whom he's redeemed, um, I, I still need to confess it. And uh, in the sense that I need to receive that, that sacramental absolution. And the, what's important for me is, and I'll get to your answer in a sec or your question in a second. Uh, what's important to me is um, whether or not we want to say that the priest has power and authority to uh, forgive sins through Christ. Uh, I think the, f- the 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 practical benefit of it is that we are actually hearing those words, and with our theology, it's a, it's a sure sort of truth that we are being forgiven of those sins. And there's something very powerful. There's something very powerful about that. So all that to say, when I um, pr- prior to going to confession, what I will do is I will sort of reflect upon myself, and I use uh, Saint Augustine's prayer book, the second edition, for this. Um, I will sort of think over the things that have been bothering me that I have done, that I've been sort of beating myself up over, and um, whether or not I write them down as a list or just remember them uh, mentally. Uh, then I confess those sins. Um, and I think that's a better way to do it than I, at least my perception of the Roman Catholic position, where you, you've got to like, oh, well, you, if you miss a single mortal sin kind of thing, well, be careful, you know? Um, because that sort of plagues you of like, oh, no, what if I, 
what if I don't remember one or something? And I think it's better to just be like, what are the things that are plaguing you? And I think it's just a sort of natural fit that way. Yeah, I think that I think you I think you hit the nail on the head too because if I was uh, in preparation for this, I was looking over uh, the classical prayer book and looking at some of the rubrics and things. And of course, there's a line in the in the exhortation when it says. The, the, when the priest says, uh, because it is requisite that no man should come to the Holy Communion but with a with a full trust in God's mercy and with a quiet conscience, et cetera, et cetera. And then also, when I was looking at the visitation of the sick, um, right before the absolution form given in the visitation of the sick, there's a rubric that says, if you feel his conscience troubled with any weighty matter, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's definitely, that's kind of the, hits the nail on the head of what the Anglican approach is. Like, you, you should examine your conscience and and see what still weighs you down and and you and kind of plagues you as a sin that you you feel like you still feel guilt and shame over um yeah so i thought that was a good summation of it like yeah so with my confession you know then i i, I received the absolution and so at least with my parish both parishes the one back home and the one up here in uh, near pittsburgh with absolution, uh, there's usually some sort of penance, and the way we do it is very minor penance of like, uh, I mean, obviously depending on what, what it is, uh, but sort of like, okay, read the psalm, you know, that, that sort of thing, and then um, that's sort of it, you know? Hmm. Now, I, I think it's important to sort of move on uh, to understandings of like what is happening with absolution. Um, and if it's all good, I want to start by reading sort of the, the central passage that a lot of us would point to for this. So uh, John chapter 20, hmm. verses 21 through 23. I'm reading from the RSV, and let's see, where are we at? Uh, so this is right after the resurrection, and Jesus is with his disciples, and he goes in verse 20. Oh, well, actually starting at 21, sorry. Uh 21, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So, with absolution, uh, so that is like the central passage that we would look to for the yeah. idea that the clergy have this ability to forgive and uh or to bind and loose sin yeah and it's it's quoted uh basically word for word in the ordination prayer yes for oh, the yes, ordination yes. of a priest yeah mm -hmm. the bishop the bishop when he's put, puts his hands on the priest and actually the moment of ordination he's he says those words mm -hmm. so the thing that that was one of the things that always hit me even as a, a, a child you know, reading those passages, uh, also Matthew um, 16 or Matthew 18 as well, I think both of those passages, uh, you know, growing a Baptist and reading the King James, which is, you know, an Anglican Bible, <laughs> yeah. it, it, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't hide it, you know, it's very much like, um, if you forgive the sins, they are forgiven, uh, etc. And so that always was just an odd thing to me. I'm like, wait a minute, so it's not just merely pronouncing, but like they have that power. That's always how I interpreted it. Um, and then, but, you know, within a lot of evangelical circles and Baptist circles and etc., it's really merely pronouncing the forgiveness of sins. So what, um, 
Although there, I would say that there are some Reformed Anglicans who would hold to that too. So w- what would you hold to on, on all of that? Um. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not actually totally sure, like where I fall on that question, and I'm not. I'm actually not even certain it's it's like. I'm not even sure if it's a helpful distinction to make. Like it seems to me, um, when evangelicals and some Reformed Anglicans make it, they're. Um, and this might be uncharitable, but it just appears to me that they are trying to hedge their bets to a certain extent and try to avoid any sacerdotal connotations, but also affirm what they clearly see in scripture, which is, I mean, that's, that's admirable, but at the same time, like the, um, it seems to me like that they are pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, but it's, but it's, it's the kind of, it seems to me like it in a certain sense. Now I'm not saying that, um, confessions and absolution is a, is a sacrament in the sense that baptism is a sacrament, but that being said, you know, it's, it's the kind of speech act that happens in a baptism I you know name I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit it's like the the actual the pronouncement of the words affects what it references um, and I think that's what's going on in in um, the absolution especially if you look at the absolute the form of absolution in the visitation to the sick which is the strongest one um, and probably the one that makes reformed people the most uncomfortable it, the, the priest says in the visitation of the sick, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath left power to his church to absolve all sinners who truly repent and believe in him, of his great mercy forgive thee thine offenses. And by his authority committed to me, I absolve thee from all thy sins. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it is a pronouncement... It's it's it, to me it's an extension of the of the preaching office, but I don't I don't think that diminishes from the fact that the pronouncement affects what it pronounces. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense, and it, it is interesting to me that I, I and I'm unfortunately not as well versed in Presbyterian or Reformed Baptist theology as I probably should be, but um, I do have a lot of respect for covenantal theology, and and it's hmm. um. Uh, I see that covenantal theology within sort of uh, the view of baptism in the Eucharist. It's just it, it, and I'm thinking of this now. Like, how would they look at how? They, like, it seems like they could look at this in a more covenantal view uh, that they would look at with those uh, two sacraments, where it is the the sure it, it is the surety because they do believe that the sins are already are forgiven. So it is the priest mm. pronouncing that in a, a sure way, with sort of the same mindset that baptism is where it's not just a mere like oh well this represents but like it's actually saying something and declaring something um oh interesting but but yeah Hmm. i um i think that one of the problems is that uh oh let me put it this way this section of uh sacramental theology is one of the ones that convinced me more of the sacerdotal nature of the priesthood than I think anything else. Hmm. Because I do see it as a, you know, giving that power to them, not separate from Christ, which is why I think Hmm. uh, there has to be that, um, I don't want to say balance, but I guess balance of it is a sacerdotal nature, but it's not, uh, it's not at all separate from Christ's priesthood. It's actually participating in the priesthood of Christ. Um, which we do at, uh, at, as laity to one level and at a different level 
uh, the clergy do. And I was realizing that if this is being something that, that's given to the apostles and to the ministers, as, as the prayer book says, which I'll read in a second, um, then there is that ontological difference. Because if this is something that the clergy do and not the laity, um, or at least not the laity on the same level, then that means that there, for me, that there is an ontological difference between the two. Does that make oh, sense? Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, I think that the way I tend to approach it is, and going back to like the verbiage of mm-hmm. the absolution and the vita- visitation of the sick says, mm-hmm. you know, our Lord Jesus Christ, who have left, who hath left power to His Church to absolve mm-hmm. all sinners. I tend to view it as like the whole church as as a body as the body of Christ participates in the priesthood of Christ that you know the priesthood of all believers mm-hmm. um, which doesn't mean the priesthood of every believer in the in the in the sense of a unit by himself but mm-hmm. the church as a whole participates in Christ's priesthood and the church as a whole has the authority to absolve sin but mm-hmm. that the church commits that in a special sense to her ministers um, but I would I would say not in such a way that I, I actually think there's cases where a individual Christian can uh, pronounce absolution over another Christian, um, n- maybe not in the not with the same surety as as the um, as the kind of the prayer book absolutions. But there are instances I think where believers are supposed to absolve each other of their sin. Um, I think that's part of what James is talking about when he says confess your sins to one another. I don't think he just means confess your sins to the, the ministers of the church. Right? Yeah. Oh, that. Um, so that is interesting that you brought up the idea of it being the church, um, which I don't think I necessarily disagree with. Uh, however, um, and I'm using right now the uh, the most reformed prayer book because I like to use the ar- strongest arguments. Uh, to, to read from this. So the 1552 is considered like, um, if anyone knows the Diocese of Sydney, that's like basically Presbyterians with the prayer book and like <laughs> quite almost literally. Um, yeah, still, still the Diocese of Sydney is still the, uh, is, uh, there, there were a lot of Anglican jurisdictions, you know, start after the Elizabethan settlement and into, um, the 19th century, starting with the Tractarians, there was, there were canons in the diocese that required, that the altar be made of wood and not be fixed in place. And none of those canons are in place in any diocese anymore except the Diocese of Sydney. So still to this day in the the Diocese of Sydney, by canon, an altar needs to be made of wood and not not attached or fixed in place. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) I did not know that. I I really would love to study, like, the Diocese of Sydney. It's just such an interesting diocese. Uh, They actually... They famously, um, well, at least with an Anglicanism, tried to push for lay Eucharistic ministry, like oh, not yeah. in like the not in just like the sort of lay Eucharistic ministers of like that are popular today within Roman Catholicism, but like literally presiding over the Eucharist as a lay minister. Yeah, see, I don't even understand. that. To me, that's like that's like doublespeak. Like if you if you're if you're if the church is setting aside somebody to preside at the Eucharist, they've made them a priest. You know, well, at like, least in some sense, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in some sense. I mean, maybe not officially by, like, in conformity with Catholic, like, order. But, the, the you know, the essence, you know, the essence of the priesthood, or at least, like, yeah. one of the primary functions is to is to minister to God's church by 
presiding at the at the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're saying that this person's a layman now presiding at the Eucharist, it's just yeah, I don't it that doesn't make any sense to me. And I I I don't mean to beat on the diocese of Sydney. In a lot of ways, they're on the side of the angels because they're you know they're one of the few conservative dioceses left in the Australia. Anglican Church in Australia. So I mean they're fighting the good fight, but at the same oh, time, yeah. I yeah yeah no, this is not to sort of deride them or anything. I just find it really interesting. And yeah, I'm I'm realizing more and more that. Uh, reformed Anglicans and Anglo-Catholics need to put aside our differences in many ways and just sort of like embrace each other because like there's just way too much other stuff going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. Although um, it, it, in my in my experience, it does seem like and this is just you know this is just anecdotal for me, but it seems like Anglo-Catholics uh, tend to be a little bit more inclusive in that regard. Than Reformed Anglicans can be, I, I yeah I, I I largely think so. Although I do know pockets, but they tend to be in like the continuing Anglican groups that are like mm-hmm. if you do, like if you don't believe in the Immaculate Conception, you're just a heathen. I'm like, oh, well, oh sorry, I don't believe in the Immaculate yeah, Conception. Yeah. That's uh that's Anglo Papalism <laughs> at that point. That's not yeah, Anglo Catholic yeah. anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Um. But uh oh yeah to get back to so so first I need to make a distinction. So we talked about auricular confession where the person personally goes to the priest and uh, confesses sins and then is receiving um, absolution from the priest. However, the more common type within Anglicanism happens every Sunday or every morning and evening prayer Hmm. where uh, we do our confession and we confess, uh, confess our sins by reading a prayer of confession altogether. And then at the end of that, the priest will pronounce absolution. And I'm going to read this part right here. Now, this is the one from the 1552, which, remember, is the most reformed of the prayer books. Um, so, after we confess our sins together, this is from the morning prayer version, uh, the, the priest says this. Uh, in, in the italics, in the rubrics, it says, The absolution to be pronounced by the minister alone. Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which desireth not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live, hath given power and commandment to his ministers to declare and pronounce to his people, being penitent, the absolution or remission of their sins. He pardoneth and absolveth all those... Oh, sorry, going back to the more modern prayer book. He pardoneth and absolveth all them which truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. Uh, Wherefore, let us beseech him to grant us true repentance, etc. Hmm. So within the the prayer book, uh, the the absolution pronouncement, which is specifically by the rubrics alone to be made by the priest, uh, within the words themselves, it says it's given power and commandment to his ministers. Hmm. So how would you sort of understand that? Not to challenge you too much, but I just I found that interesting with especially when you're talking about how the the church within the uh, the one uh, visitation to the sick. Yeah, I think I think the way I would approach it is. Um... Um, the the rubric that limits the pronoun the pronouncement of absolution to the minister or to the when in this case the minister means priest, um, so it's a, a narrower sense of minister. Uh, is is uh, for for the context of the liturgical assembly. Okay. So I would say in the context of the liturgical assembly, only a priest or a bishop should pronounce absolution. But I think. I don't think that rules out instances of uh, of um, Christian um, brothers and sisters in private contexts 
offering a form of absolution to each other, especially in instances where one of the parties is the one being that was sinned against, yeah, yeah. and the other party. So um, I haven't like worked that out very well, but I I, I tend to think um, I tend to be careful of of looking at at rubrics that reference liturgical assemblies and kind of expand that scope to just like the general Christian life. And I think I think because of our modern context as Christians in, in the United States, we tend to think, you know, we, we kind of, we absolutize everything. What, what's appropriate in private Christian devotion is appropriate in the liturgical assembly and vice versa. And um, as I've, as I've um, been Anglican, I've, I've really started to see that that's, those are actually two different spheres and what could be appropriate in one isn't necessarily appropriate in the other one. Um, so for example, I, I actually pray a form of the rose, rosary in private devotions um but i would never consider that appropriate for a public assembly um so with that with what you're saying because i'm looking at the 1662 as well um which has even stronger sort of um and this isn't going to challenge what you just said at all i but i just want to like fill it a bit more okay um so in the morning prayer i'm looking again at the morning prayer uh so the rubrics instead say to be now to be pronounced by the priest alone standing, mm-hmm. the people still kneeling, um, emphasizing that idea that this is uh, the, the priest. And then it has more functionally the same words that I read as far as the absolution comes. Um, and then the rubrics afterwards, uh, it says, the people shall answer here and at the end of all of the prayers, amen. But then it also says under that, if no priest be present, the person saying the service shall read the collect for the 21st Sunday after Trinity. Hmm. That person and the people still kneeling. Um, then the minister shall kneel and say the, the Lord's Prayer with an audible voice, the people also kneeling and repeating it with him, both here and whereso- wheresoever else it is used in divine service. Uh, so those who follow the Barely Protestant page on Facebook uh, probably have seen me doing morning and evening prayer. And they might or might not notice if they're following along in their own prayer book that I go to the 21st Sunday after Trinity, the collect for that Sunday. And instead of pronouncing the absolution, I pronounce that one, Hmm. um, which is a a much quote weaker one. It's, you know, may God, you know, may God, uh, you know, grant us uh, forgiveness of sins and and sort of pardon and peace and all that. Um, And it's not quote as quote sure as the one in the actual standard morning and evening prayer. Um, so yeah. there is that distinction, uh, which I think is very important because whether or not we want to talk about it as merely function or as a sort of ontological difference, the, the even if it's a mere functional difference, I think it's important because it helps us have structures where we know we are entering into worship as community. These are the rules within that community. Um, and I think both sides, whether it's functional or ontological, can say that we're, that obviously um, forgiveness and absolution can come outside of that structure. Yeah. But this is a an established way, and we want to have this as a sort of standard that we can enter into and be assured of in, in like the highest degree. Does that yeah. make sense? Okay. No, it makes perfect sense. I, I totally agree with you too. And um, I just referenced that one of the things I love about the 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 new uh, ACNA prayer book is that it, it prints the the collect for twenty first 
the 21st Sunday after Trinity, it prints it right there at the beginning of the mm-hmm. of the of the morning and evening prayer, so that you don't have to flip back to it, um, which is nice to have there because it ha- in other prayer books it hasn't been there. You've actually had to flip back to um, the thing. But yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with you. the The thing I I think you hit on a on a an important topic about like the surety of it and like having like organized structures in the body of Christ. One of the things I, I don't know if you've ever read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Um, I've not, unfortunately. There's a great passage in there where he talks about confession, and he's clearly talking about confession just as in a kind of brother to brother context. But he has a beautiful passage where he says he's kind of talking about the reason for like actual confession to you know another believer as opposed to just private confession and pr- like personal confession and prayer. Um, and he says he said the word he says the word of the word of Christ in me is weak. But the word of Christ and my brother is sure, um, hmm. and it's a beautiful passage. And I think it, you can expand that by saying, the word and the word of Christ and my brother is sure, and the word of Christ in an ordained minister of his church is even more sure because yeah. you know that he this is somebody that the church has set aside, even if taken like you said a functionalist idea. It's somebody the church has set aside to have this function, and that's I mean the the church has authority to do these things, even if it's not you know kind of a, if you don't have a uh, jure divino understanding of, of these things, the church, the church's activities are important and we need to attend to them and submit to them. I agree. Uh, so just to clarify something, I don't remember if I said it or not. The reason I go to the 1662 or just went to it uh, was because that is the standard sort of like the canon quote of prayer books. So all Hmm. prayer books are supposed to conform to that, just for the audience to understand why I went to the 1662. Um, Yeah. So, like, the most official prayer book is the 1662. That's So that that was just an aside. But the second part, like, that sort of really coincides with my experience as a child uh, growing up in a Baptist church because I never was sure that I would receive forgiveness of sins, you know? And Hmm. I remember praying the sinner's prayer till like till you know crying at night and until my tears like were completely emptied <laughs> and asking for forgiveness of sins but never receiving absolution hmm. um, or at least knowing of, of that reception of absolution and I wanted to know I was for, forgiven but because because there's no sort of theology of an ontological difference with pastors at least you know this, how my mindset works today Hmm. like within baptist theology or at least within the baptist sort of circles i ran basically everyone had an equal sort of like interpretive power you know yeah Um, every man's the pope for himself yeah exactly basically (laughs) and uh although functionally that's not at all how it worked but that was the theology proper Um, because if you ever went against the pastor like you know me as a kid i loved pokemon and you know, my pastor was like, oh, that's evil demon stuff. I'm like, what? No, it's not. you like, well, according to the Bible, it is. Like, where does the Bible talk about Pokemon? But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like that sort of thing. But yeah, like, in our proper theology of Baptist, you know, and this is not to knock on Baptist, but this was a, a significant problem for me growing up. I would pray the Sunday's Prayer, like, for, uh, during my teen years, like, almost every night, you know? And wow. it just... I didn't know I was forgiven of sins, and I, I didn't know how I could know for sure. That's why absolution is so important to me. It's that I, I receive the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. 
Yeah. Because it's not enough to read it in scripture um, because it's my own interpretive lens of understanding it. I think that, that, like, that's why sacramental theology is so important because it's like the scripture is being made alive through the sacraments, you know, Hmm. where it's not just a sort of intellectual thing, but it's actually entering into creation physically. Does that make sense? No, yeah, yeah, and I, it, it brings to mind um, Calvin um, referred to the sacraments as visible words, mm-hmm. which I think is a really uh, helpful way of looking at it. It's like it, mm-hmm. we tend to think of like word and sacrament as two different things, but they're really kind of two sides of the same coin. Like if you think about it, fully. preaching is a sacrament, like in the, in the in the broad sense of the term, it's. You know, a, a man is standing there vibrating airway, you know, vibrating the air with his vocal cords and that those airwaves are hitting your ears and through the medium of those airwaves hitting your ears, faith is produced in your heart. That's what that's a, that's physicality. That's a physical thing producing a spiritual fruit in you. That's what that's what baptism and the Lord's Supper and absolution do. Um, well, there, there can be no sacrament without words. Uh, every single yeah. sacrament requires words exactly so yeah no i totally agree well so um oh there was another point i wanted to bring up i'm trying to remember um so there's confession so we have the uh, general confession which is what you know what we call the the most common one done every sunday done every morning and evening prayer Uh, yeah and then i I, oh sorry i was just gonna say a note on the general confession one of the things i love about anglicanism that you know, in a lot of ways, for people who aren't familiar with the tradition, you could walk into an Anglican church and structurally it's going to, especially a modern Anglican service, is going to be very structurally similar to a Roman Catholic Mass. Um, but the, one of the main differences is, is our general confession is unique to us. Um, and Rome, the Roman Catholic Mass doesn't actually have an absolution in it, it um, be- because of their, their emphasis on private auricular confession. The, the even a, even a Catholic mass that has the confiteor at the beginning that's not considered an actual absolution by Rome theologically which I think is a little funny because it, it clearly has the form of a yeah. of a kind of absolution but yeah like what you were saying the importance of knowing especially when you're approaching the table of knowing that you are forgiven by God I think is emphasized by the fact that we have every celebration of the Eucharist in in the Anglican Church we have the general confession and we have an absolution by by the priest. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, definitely. Um, so with uh, with uh, confession and absolution, uh, for you, if you don't mind me asking, have you ever done um, auricular confession? I have. Okay, okay. So do you do you experience that sort of like? So for me, what happens when I go to confession? I, I always dread going to confession, no matter how many times I've done it before, <laughs> because it's like I have to talk to this priest about the things I've done. Um, and then once I receive that absolution, I always come out and I'm just so thankful that I did. You know? Uh, do you have that sort of similar feeling, or is it not as powerful for you? Maybe or um, yeah, I mean, it's similar. So I, I typically dread uh, before I go, um, and then. My my most vivid one was my first confession I did, um, which I used. My my priest sent me. Uh, uh, I think it was uh, Pusey did a, a piece on making your first confession, and I kind of went through that. And um, he kind of has you take like a like a, a life inventory of sin patterns mm-hmm. in your life. And so my first confession was pretty heavy because it was you know 
I think at the time I was 25, 26, so it's 26 years of, of you know, sin patterns in my life. And um, it wasn't so much like a, a, a after afterwards for me, it wasn't so much a, a, a exuberant feeling of thankfulness so much as it was like just a weight had been lifted. Yeah. Something had been taken away. Like it was... You know, it was just like the. It was kind of re- relief, and that kind of I yeah. think is probably the main, uh, the main, um, the f- the main feeling I feel right afterwards. I try not to, when I've done it, I've tried not to rely too much on my the, like my the feelings that I feel after like the confession, um, and focus on the objective nature of the of the absolution pronounced by the priest. But uh, you know, I th- I think the commonality for me is just a feeling of relief. It's like, you know, I've I've put this out there, and one of you know one of God's representatives has said, you know, you're forgiven, go in peace. No, I agree. Um, with, uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, seal of confession? So, for those who don't understand or know, uh, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, etc., um, are supposed to, uh, priests are supposed to, in the proper sort of confession, not speak at all to anyone else of what uh, the sins confessed were. Do you think that's a good practice? Do you think that's a bad practice? What 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 are your views on all that? No, I think it's I think it's a good practice, and um, and this this is going to get a little political here for a second because of what's going on oh, right California. now with yeah yeah well in my state and others I think Australia is trying to push this right now where they're making it illegal for um, priests to honor the seal of the confessional and with regards to cases where they think that it's likely that a child will be abused. Um, I think that's ill-advised for a number of reasons. One, it's it's not clear how you can enforce such a law other, other than by setting up cases, cases of entrapment. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, is it's, it's just going to discourage, um, you know, people who are abusing yeah. children or whoever from going to confession and possibly seeking an avenue through which they can they can get help and the other thing is is it, here's the thing and i don't know i'm not a priest but if i was a priest and somebody confessed something like that to me i what i would say is is if it was a serious enough thing where it was a continual ongoing thing i would say i'm not going to absolve you until you turn yourself into the th- authorities exactly like yeah. that i would just make that a condition of their absolution like look you this is not something that you can receive absolution for until I have, I have clear evidence that you are repentant, and in this case, repentance means you turn yourself into the authorities and submit to the law. Um, uh, I, and so, I totally agree. Yeah. So I, no, I, that's my thoughts on that. No, yeah, I agree. I was actually going to bring that up because that's what my priest has uh, talked about uh, with, like, he does an Anglican class uh, every year, sort of like a catechetical program. And the first time I heard it, uh, because I was very uneasy about this idea that the priest sort of, you know, this whole understanding of, you know, the seal of confession and everything. And he goes, look, uh, first, if they're coming to you uh, confessing this, like, they take this seriously, you know? Yeah. Um, and, it, it, you know, if you're confessing it as a joke, then that's just you being a jerk. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's not, like, you don't, you don't, yeah, it, it, like, they're coming to you confession specifically because this is something weighing on their hearts. So, and they believe that this is something that's happening. Uh, so, my priest said, like, uh, he goes, if that were to ever happen with me, 
Um, and he's had similar things happen, and he's done this uh, exact uh, thing. He goes, I would demand that part of their penance is that they uh, go with him to the authorities and uh, turn themselves in. And if in the one or two times or whatever that he's had to do it, they, they did do that. Um, and he goes, uh, if uh, they don't, then I will bind them to their sin. And their souls are in danger of hellfire. Like that. That is. Yeah. You know, That's the other side of the keys. Exactly. It's binding and loosing. It's not just loosing. You know. And mm-hmm. it's so interesting because, uh, I, do you know Bishop Robert Barron? Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar yeah. with him. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for him in many ways. But he was sort of approached. Uh, someone approached him with this question. I think it was Dave Rubin. Um, and to me, that's just such an obvious thing because like. What, what the answer you and I just gave. Yeah. And he was sort of hem-hawing around it, saying, well, you know, I don't think the you know, priest should be forced to do this. And uh, sort of, I'm like, explain that, like, uh, that you're going to bind them to their sins because you have penance, obviously, you know, as a Roman Catholic priest that you give. Yeah. Why can't that be part of the penance? Yeah, and in and Roman... He just, sort of, he just sort of never really, like, gave that answer, and it was so odd to me. You know, oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, because in Roman Catholic theology, your your um, absolution is conditional on you performing the penance. Yeah. So if a, a penance is assigned to you and you don't do it, you actually haven't received the absolution mm-hmm. um, in their understanding of it. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the pragmatic answer that you gave also, where like these are people who then they won't go to confession if it, like that's the thing. Um well, then the problem is, you know, like, that problem being that then there won't be people who are confessing in at least that avenue of, like, well, then absolution is only gained by uh, turning yourself in. Like, that, that, that's, that I think is going to close off more pedophiles being caught or whatever we want to put in there, murderers, rapists, whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I see any reason for it to be considered a good thing, in, yeah. no matter what your view of the sacrament is itself anyway. Yeah. I mean, I understand, like, I mean, the the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church um, over the last 20 years has, I mean, just kind of bankrupted the church of tons of social capital. And I think a lot of these, I think a lot of these laws are attempts to, to punish the Catholic Church. So I understand, I understand where they're coming from. It, they're, a lot of it's coming from legitimate anger at the Catholic Church for protecting pedophile priests and things like that but it's just this isn't a solution like it's not going to do anything laws have to be enforceable you know they ha- they have to they have to have a, a projected beneficial outcome and this just none of these do yeah well and then on top of that so pennsylvania like i'm living in pennsylvania now and i i've lived here uh before and obviously after the whole uh, sex abuse stuff came out recently within the past, I think, last year or something. Um, oh yeah, the, and, the like the grand the grand jury thing that they yeah yeah came out with yeah yeah. And one of the things that uh, was being talked about with it was that priests were quote confessing to each other and absolving each other. You know, like like both of the, both priests being pedophiles, they would confess oh, wow. to each other and like absolve each other. And I'm like, well, then at that point you're not taking it seriously. Like that's just like like that is two pedophiles talking about it you know what i'm saying yeah that's that's it's sophistry at that point 
yeah, it, it's like that. The, the, there's nothing functional about that at all whatsoever. Um, so that like. I don't think... So, some people have argued, well, because of stuff like that, but, like, then making a law is not going to change any of that. That's just... That's not going to do yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe maybe Rome could could help their own case by... I, so, I know, for example, um, normal, everyday Roman Catholic priests don't actually have the faculties to absolve somebody who desecrates the sacrament. Mm. Um, it automatically has to go up the chain of command. Um, oh yes, yeah. to the to the bishop. I'm wondering if I mean, and that's in addition to me. That's just an issue of canon law. It seems like they could institute something like that for abuse of children, where yeah, your local your local like average priest doesn't have the faculty. He has to go up the chain to the bishop or whoever, and then that might solve some problems like that, where you get priests like absolving each other when they're both doing the same thing. Oh yeah, no, no, yeah. I think but that's I mean that's speculative. But I think that goes to the sort of mere sort of, which is a problem I, ha- I have with Rome, is it's a sort of legalism of like, well, you know, um, I, like it is the Pharisaicalism of like, well, I did this sort of by the letter, you know, absolve, you know, absolution and sort of stuff, so everything's good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, very juridi- juridical, juridical yeah. or juris- juridical, yeah. juridical understanding of like, you know, the nature of the Christian life, which mm-hmm. can become when it's one-sided like that is terrible and becomes pharisaical, yeah. Yeah, which is why I think the uh, the Anglican position is much more balanced because we try not to... I, I think our, our lack of definition on stuff uh, concerning these sacraments is a very helpful thing because it allows that balance of functional and ontological um, where this is a surety of a thing, but, like, it's also... Uh, like, if if the priest is not working with Christ in this, then it's not, um, like, like, it's harder to sort of see it as sort of being done the right way and therefore valid or whatever. Yeah, know, like, it, it, yeah, it's like, I, I, are you saying kind of basically, like, the validity of it doesn't just come from extrinsic factors, yes, like, yes. Re- extrinsic requirements, like, extrinsic requirements are, are necessary, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to be in holy orders or and be at least a presbyter and things like that, but that's not... It's a necessary but not sufficient condition to put it in kind of philosophical terms. Um, I think, yeah. I, yeah, I generally would agree with that. Although I think, to be fair to Rome, um, at least officially, they would say the same thing. But I think that the, the, the atmosphere of Rome is so plagued with a sort of legalism that it just... They can say that officially, but that's sort of functionally how it works. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. But I don't want to beat up Rome too much. No, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we we'll we'll leave that leave that to the Calvinists. They they can have that. Oh, yeah, they can they have can that field. They can take care of that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. I I always appreciate being on. It's always great to talk to you. Awesome. All right. We'll be on. Have a great one.